Well, Parsha Tetzaveh, I've been thinking a lot about uh, just in a general sense about revelation, which is defined as knowing an unknown fact or supernatural disclosure, right, to something relating to human existence. I ponder how the Lord reveals himself to people and how people react to that revelation. That's really the crux of religion. It really boils down to something that simple. God reveals himself to you and you respond to it. How that looks, looks a lot of different ways. And that's what I find very interesting. How in China, people are underground willing to risk prison or their life over a Bible. That's got to be the spirit working in their lives in an incredible way. That's passion. Or even in our neighborhood, people that come here, it's interesting hearing how they received revelation. It's not all the time at once. And that's how, that's what I find interesting is revelation's different. God works in different people's lives differently at different times and in different ways in different degrees. But it's not a random process, right? There's a plan going on here. You can read the scriptures. It starts and it gets bigger and more developed. And there's something coming. And so I enjoy just kind of analyzing what's out there because it's not a random process. It's a part of a process where there is a kingdom that is coming. And all of that's part of that in a sense. You know, it begins with just one guy, Abraham, receiving some revelation and it culminates in the kingdom when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Yeshua is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we're somewhere in between that. Probably more towards the latter end. Parshat Tetzaveh, let's uh, get right in here. And so a lot of what I'll be, my thoughts are this morning will be kind of related to that revelation and how do we respond to that. Because sometimes we respond well, sometimes not so well. Sometimes we misunderstand revelation. Let's see, Exodus chapter 28. I won't read as much as Amber read because I'm going to jump around a little bit this morning. But it's nice to begin here, Torah. This is the foundation. Um, a quick review, they were, the children of Israel, of course, were freed from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. They uh, were brought to the mountain and received revelation a few chapters ago. They responded to that by receiving, accepting the covenant. They were giving instruction then, a bunch of uh, Torah commandments on a broad variety of subjects. Last week's Torah portion, they were told to build the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and then this week's Torah portion... They are given instruction uh, on because that tabernacle needs priests to operate inside of it. So, this week's Torah portion um, is generally concerned with the priesthood. Pretty much about it. Um, chapter 28, verse 1. You are to summon your brother Aharon and his sons to come from among the people of Israel to you so that they can serve me as Kohanim, as priests. Aaron and his sons, his four sons here, Nadav, Avihu, Eliezer, and Itamar. You are to make for your brother Aaron garments set apart 
right? That's holiness, consecration. Set apart for serving God, expressing dignity and splendor. Speak to all of the craftsmen who I have given the spirit of wisdom and make them and have them make Aaron's garments to set him apart for me so that he can serve me in the office of Cohen. So Aaron and his sons get the privilege to be the priests. There is craftsmen that are given the spirit of wisdom, the Ruach HaKokmah, and uh, that's to aid the people in the construction of a variety of different things. The Torah goes on, uh, the next couple, couple paragraphs, several paragraphs, to describe many of the vestments, the ephah, the rope, the robes, the breastplate, right? The turban, note that the priests had to have their head covered, right? Western customs dictate that usually one must have his head uncovered. That's a, not a Torah tradition. Unfortunately, that tradition, that Western tradition of having man having his head covered sort of leaked into the translation end of it, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But that's not Torah. That's man's tradition. Torah's traditions have your head covered. They uh, are anointed with oil, and then there are some offerings given, and then they're being consecrated. Let's pick up the reading in the next chapter here, chapter 29, verse 38. One more page over. This is sort of the conclusion here of Aaron and his sons getting installed into the priesthood. Now, this is what you are to offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old regularly every day. The one lamb you are to offer in the morning and the other lamb at dusk. Um, with the one lamb, offer two quarts of finely ground flour mixed with one quart of oil from pressed olives along with one quart of wine as a drink offering. The other lamb you are to offer at dusk do with it as the morning grain and drink offerings. It will be a pleasing aroma, an offering made by fire to Adonai. Through all your generations, this is to be the regular burnt offering at the entrance to the tent of meeting before Adonai. There is where I will meet with you to speak with you. Um, there I will meet with the people of Israel, and the place will be consecrated um, by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Likewise, I will consecrate Aharon and his sons to serve me in the office of Cohen. Then I will live with the people of Israel and be their God, and they will know that I am Adonai, their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt in order to live with them. I am Adonai, their God. Those last couple of verses there, that really gets to the whole reason the children of Israel were redeemed. He wants to live with them and dwell among them. That's really why we were created. He wants to live with us and dwell with us. The problem is he is holy, 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 and we are not. And so what's being taught here is that you have to go before him. There's a process for this of holiness and sanctification and being set apart that takes a little work. There's a relationship being built here between a tiny little nation and our creator. The nation was freed from bondage through no efforts of their own, salvations from Adonai only. But then they received revelation of who God is and what he wants, the Torah. And they need to respond to that. 
See, relationships are a two-way street. Salvation is completed by divine might, of course, but revelation is given to the people and a response is needed from them. They get a revelation, they need to respond to it. So here in the Torah, in a very small and basic way, Adonai is starting to bring revelation to the world, and he starts small. He starts with a tiny little group of people, a little nation over on the other side of the world. He sets this little nation apart, gives them the spirit, and when they respond affirmatively, he dwells within them. In a couple more chapters, the sanctuary space is filled up with smoke. The presence of Adonai is there. Confirmation of the whole process. And that is sort of the pinnacle of uh, this whole priesthood uh, tabernacle experience here during the Exodus is uh, his presence is dwelling with them. And so the pattern is set here. This is sort of a pattern of Adonai dwelling with the people. And there are just messianic parallels here that are just all over the place. I mean, Aaron is called the anointed priest, Hakohen HaMoshiach. You know, there's Moshiach right in there. And that's same thing with the oil. The oil is consecrated. That's set apart. And you can look at Aaron as an intermediary, right? His service provides atonement for the people. Just, you know, it goes on and on. There's just so many patterns that are set here on a much smaller scale that you'll see again because that's what the Bible is all about, is about patterns. As time goes by, revelation begins to be received um, from people who are outside of the camp, from people who are not at the mountain when Adonai gave the Torah, Word starting to get out a little bit. That's how it works. He starts, gets something established. Revelation's beginning to spread outside of the borders of Israel. Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. That's on page 378 in the Stearns. If you have a different version of Scripture, 1 Kings chapter 8 is where King Solomon's dedicating the temple. And again, there's a whole bunch of pomp and circumstance in dedicating this temple. But in verse 41, so 1 Kings 8, 41, there's a bit of a prophecy here. And you can see how um, revelations beginning to spread. 1 Kings 8, 41 says this. He's talking about, he's, he's praying to God right now, beseeching God for blessings for things uh, for his fellow Israelites, that things are going to go well. And then he adds this in here. He says, Also the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, when he comes from a distant country because of your reputation, for they will hear of your great reputation, your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, then here in heaven where you live, and act in accordance with everything about which the foreigner is calling to you, so that all the peoples of the earth will know your name and fear you, as does your people Israel, so that they will know that this house, this is the house which I have built, uh, this house bears your name. So word is spreading here. People from the nations are beginning to see. Adonai is revealing more and more of himself to the nations. 
you would think the story would end great if everyone would just get in line, respond positively, but um, humans don't do that. And so there's rejection, there's rebellion, there's nations warring up against Israel and jealousy. Anti-Semitism's thousands and thousands of years old. Sometimes there's misunderstanding. There's misunderstanding. There's times that I've received revelation and it's been in tiny little bits, um, maybe an insight or something I had never thought of before. Sometimes revelation isn't always a Damascus Road experience. Sometimes it's just an adjustment and your misunderstanding. This is, uh, Yeshua brought revelation. That's sort of the next level as you continue through the scriptures. But the apostles had a habit of not understanding his parables. There was some misunderstanding there, and that's understandable because they were waiting for him to defeat the Romans. They weren't, didn't realize that he was at war with the accuser. It was more of a spiritual war at this point. But he still had a job to do. Yeshua had a job to do, and it wasn't to get his Talmudim on track just yet. They would get their revelation um, corrected in good time. And it did take some time after the resurrection for them to receive revelation to sort of process the experience, <clears throat> um, that experience of living with and being witness to the life, death, and resurrection of our Master Yeshua. Kind of takes a minute. You can see that in the book of Ephesians 1. We have more revelation happening here. Just see it expanding outward more. Page 1459. We're going to sit in Ephesians for a minute. A letter from Yeshua's emissary, Shaul, or Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he's generally known. Verse 7 reads like this. In union with him, through the shedding of his blood, we are set free. Our sins are forgiven. This accords with the uh, wealth of the grace he has lavished on us. In all his wisdom and insight, he has made known to us his secret plan which by his will, his own will, he designed beforehand in connection with the Messiah and will put into effect when the time is right his plan to place everything in heaven and on earth under the Messiah's headship. So he's, it's being revealed to him. There's a, there's a plan that he has that we don't know, um, but there's... You know, it's this revelation. He's beginning to see this. Everything's coming together for him. Um, continue in the, turn the page in chapter 2, verse 13. Because he's talking about, you know, his brothers, his Jewish brothers and sisters, and all these other God-fears that are coming in there. He says, but now you who are once far off have been brought near through the shedding of Messiah's blood. For he himself is our shalom, our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down the mekitsa, the dividing wall between us, by destroying his, in his own body the enmity occasioned by the Torah with its commands set forth in the form of ordinances. He did this in order to create in union with himself from the two groups, Jew and Gentile, a single new humanity and make peace, make shalom, in order to reconcile God to both in a single body by being executed on a stake as a criminal and thus 
uh, in himself killing that enmity. See, he's not war not war against the Romans. He was at war against something much worse. Verse 17, also when he came, he announced the good news, peace, shalom, to you far off, that is the foreigners, and shalom to those nearby, his brothers and sisters. News that through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. See, Yeshua's work expanded the revelation of Adonai beyond the borders of Israel. It allowed for the indwelling of the Spirit to all who call on his name, to all who respond to that call, that revelation by him. Paul here is realizing that the people from the nations who are filling, this is a Jewish synagogue here in Ephesus, the people, and this is happening everywhere, that the people from the nations were filling these synagogues, and it was a move of the Spirit. You know, this is a foretaste of what the kingdom is. John realizes that this culminates in the kingdom. In the book of Revelation, uh, page 1537, John sees all the nations. He sees this uh, culminating in his vision. This is the part where we're almost there. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. Now this is coming up soon. When he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down in front of the lamb. Each one held a harp and gold bowls filled with pieces of incense, which are prayers, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals because you were slaughtered at the cost of blood. You ransomed for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you made them into a kingdom for God to rule, Kohanim, to serve him, and they will rule over the earth. That's, that's coming. A couple more pages forward. Chapter 7, that's, this is that theme all over again. 7, verse 9. <clears throat> more of just this kingdom vision. That's, this is the culmination of what uh, the basis of it starts in the Torah. After this, I looked, and there before me was a huge crowd, too large for anyone to count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They were standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they shouted, Victory to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, and the four living beings, and they fell face down before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory, wisdom and thanks, honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen to that. What began with a small nation, a tiny little tribe of nomadic people on the other side of the earth thousands of years ago, will culminate in this kingdom here that we're reading about with worldwide worship of our Messiah, Yeshua. And foreigners, the people from the nations, joining themselves to Israel was always happening, slowly at first. With Abraham, it was a few of his friends. At Mount Sinai, there was a group of them there. But they've always been, they've always been coming in, joining themselves, coming alongside with, supporting them. 
the vision of nations coming together, foreigners coming in there with the nation of Israel, is also hinted at in the book of Esther. As we know, the festival of Purim is uh, just a couple days away, and that, of course, commemorates the divinely orchestrated salvation of the Jewish people and um, the ancient Persia, right, from when Haman was trying to kill all the Jews. And uh, he had a plan, but Queen Esther and Mordecai, they worked together, they foiled that, and Haman ended up on the gallows. So um, it's celebrated with Megillah readings, gifts of food, feasting, merriment. Uh, but near the end of the book, um, during the celebration, there's a commandment to celebrate Purim. There's an interesting little line in here. Let's look at that. Esther chapter 9, this is on page 1096, 1096 in the Stearns. Little book of Esther. Seven, ten ninety three, ten ninety six. We're getting towards the end here, so um, this is sort of uh, the conclusion. I'm going to begin reading in chapter twenty. We'll get through all this in a few days, but I just wanted to point something out here. Esther chapter nine verse twenty. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews in all the provinces of King Ashverosh, both near and far instructed them to observe the 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day every year to commemorate the days on which the Jews obtained rest from their enemies and the month uh, which for them was turned from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. They were to make them days of celebrating and rejoicing, sending portions of food to each other and giving gifts to the poor. So the Jews took it upon themselves to continue what they had already begun to do. And as Mordecai had written to them, because Haman, the son of Hamada, the uh, Agagai, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had thrown pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he ordered by letters that Haman's wicked scheme uh, which he had plotted against the Jews, should recoil on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged in the gallows. This is why these days have been called Purim, after the word pur. Thus, because of everything written in this letter and what they have seen concerning this matter and what had come upon them, the Jews resolved and took it upon themselves, their descendants and all who might join them, that without fail they would observe these two days in accordance with what was written in this letter at the appointed time every year, and that these days would be remembered and observed throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, and that these days of Purim would never cease among the Jews or their memory be lost by their descendants. Did you notice who is taking part in this? I would back up, and I would like to repeat Verse 27, the Jews resolved and took it upon themselves, their descendants, and all who might join them. Those are people from the nations. Once again, here is that theme of people from the nations joining with um, 
the chosen people. And this is why Purim should be important to everyone. It may not be a Moedim commandment out of Leviticus 23, but it certainly is a biblical holiday if you believe that this book in its entirety is the revelation of God, of who God is and what he wants from us. That's what the Bible is. And so how do we respond to that? Well, we respond by celebrating Purim with as much joy and appreciation as other holidays that we cherish so much. And that's why it's, you know, we all appreciate the work many here do in helping with that, with uh, Jeanette. She's done a lot of work preparing her Lots of Love Ladies Tea Time, which is happening tomorrow. That's a ton of work. Chris and his crew, they're preparing Purim celebration on Monday. It's important because we respond to the revelation we've received, information that we know, stirrings of the heart. And especially in the world today, with so much anti-Semitism, which is getting worse, who will the people from the nations cast their lot with? Is it going to be Amalek or is it going to be the Jewish people? A short article by Toby Janecki summed it up well, I thought. He says, how important is a holiday that highlights the dangers of anti-Semitism and emphasizes that no matter how bad things look, God will come and defend his people. And this also points a picture, paints a picture for the coming kingdom. Just when things look the bleakest for Israel, Messiah Yeshua will return to gather the outcasts of Israel, defeat Israel's enemies, and usher in the Messianic kingdom. Amen, Toby. May it be soon that Yeshua returns. May he write the Torah in men's hearts and bring revelation to everyone. And may he bring restoration to the peace and to all the world. Shabbat Shalom, Shavuot Tov, and Hag Sameach.